0: Welcome to The Art of Being a Mum, the podcast that's a platform for mothers who are artists and creatives, to share the joys and issues they've encountered while continuing to make art. Regular themes we explore include the day-to-day juggle, how mothers' work is influenced by their children, mum guilt, how mums give themselves time to create within the role of mothering, and the value that mothers and others place on their artistic selves. My name's Alison Newman. I'm a singer, songwriter and a mum of two boys from regional South Australia. You can find links to my guests and topics we discuss in the show notes, together with music played, how to get in touch and a link to join our lively and supportive community on Instagram. The Art of Being a Mum acknowledges the Boendick people as the traditional owners of the land which this podcast is recorded on. Thank you so much for joining me today. It really is a pleasure to have you. This week on the podcast, my guest is Alex Sinicas. Alex is an engineer and a designer from Brighton, Victoria, and she's a mum of one. Alex grew up playing outdoors with her older brother, recreating the achievements of her childhood heroes, including Indiana Jones, MacGyver and James Bond. She spent a lot of time digging up things and blowing things up. This sparked her curiosity of how to build things and how things worked. When it came time to go to uni, Alex studied engineering and also economics. She got into design a bit later whilst working in structural engineering with architects. She wanted to be able to help people to be able to achieve. Four years ago, Alex was breastfeeding her daughter and found herself on the end of a breast pump and found it to be a quite shocking and painful experience, needing to pump extensively for her daughter who refused the breast. This got Alex thinking about how she could make this experience more comfortable, not just for herself, but for other mothers. She ordered some silicone and a robotics kit and set about creating 3D printouts of silicone cushions, which led Alex to collaborate with roboticists and a prototype coach, and her husband's insight as a GP also proved useful. They produced prototypes, and each time Alex had to pump, she would try them out, until they found the perfect fit. Thus began Milk Drop Pumps, a soft silicone pad that stretches over many brands of existing pumps. They launched in Australia in 2021, and in the US in late 2022. This episode contains discussions around pregnancy loss, postnatal depression, and an IUGR pregnancy. If today's episode is triggering for you in any way, I encourage you to seek help from those around you, medical professionals or from resources online. I've compiled a list of great international resources, which can be found on my podcast landing page, alisonnewman.net slash podcast. And while you're there, please take a minute to subscribe to my new weekly email, which I'm sending out at the beginning of each week. I'm a little bit conscious that we don't actually own all the content that we post on social media and in light of Mr Elon Musk's recent uh, takeover of Twitter and the changes he's made, I'm even more aware than ever that things could disappear in the blink of an eye. So I'd love to be able to keep in touch with you if all that disappears. So jump on and subscribe to my weekly newsletter. The music you'll hear today, as usual, is from my ambient music trio called Alemjo. We are based in Australia and it's myself, my sister Emma Anderson and her husband John. I really hope you enjoy today's chat. Welcome Alex, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you're based in, you're in Australia,
1: whereabouts are you in Australia? yeah, I live in Bright, which is about three and a half oh. hours northwest of Melbourne. Yeah, uh, I know Bright, yeah, yeah. A lot of people when you say that, they say, oh, I um I, I went on family holidays there when I was a kid or something like that. yeah, so, yeah it, has, it probably hasn't changed that much. It's probably a little bit more popular now. Yeah. um, and it's you know, in winter it's all about skiing and in summer it's all about mountain biking and mm. road riding.
0: And I remember the because I'm one of those people that not from family holidays. Yeah. Um,
1: the autumns are beautiful.
0: Which oh yeah, stunning. The displays. yeah.
1: Well, I'm I'm married to a Canadian, and he yeah. reckons that it's the closest he can get to um to Canada in Australia. So yeah. I feel like that's a nice it's a nice um compromise. We get to live here, but um, yeah. you know, similar yeah. to
0: Canada. Yeah, it's beautiful. It really is, and yeah, about three hours from yep. melbourne yeah 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 nah i have some great memories of that part of the world <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's totally
1: beautiful yeah. we're uh, very
0: lucky oh that's awesome So you're an engineer and a designer. Can you share with us how you got into that field?
1: I think I was just following my brother actually I um I have a brother who's two years older than me and through school um and growing up he he sort of um involved me in all of his activities really. so I was kind of just trotting around following him <laughs> and so our sort of childhood heroes were you know Indiana Jones and MacGyver, James Bond, that kind of stuff. So we spent a lot of time outside digging up things and blowing things up, which yep. probably not okay these days. <laughs> and so I just sort of learnt about um, how to build things and curiosity about how things work from him and probably my parents. And and I was always fairly good at maths. And so when it came time to go to I knew I always wanted to go to uni, but not, I didn't really know what I wanted to study. I thought, Oh, maybe, you know, medicine, that's like what you do if that's what you're good at maths, which is a really strange concept, but that's kind of where it was at at the time. Yeah. Um, but it just it didn't really kind of make sense. And so I, um, yeah, I ended up doing engineering and I did um, economics as well mm-hmm. um my dad had said like, Oh, you know, I never really understood how money works and how businesses work and I wish I'd known that and maybe you might like that too. And so I was pretty like aimless, um, although I was academically fairly, you know, good, yeah. um, but I, I really had no like idea about what I wanted to do. So that's how I ended up in engineering. And then mm. um, in terms of design, I got into that a bit later. One of the things you learn, you you do when you're engineering is um, you work in really big teams full of lots of different people. And I was working in structural engineering and you end up working with architects quite a lot, and I loved what they did. Yeah, like right. my grandfather was an architect, and I'd always loved design. Um, and I'm probably not very good at it, but I know what looks good, <laughs> and I like being able to help people achieve that. And so I was always drawn to architecture and just and like beautiful design, good mm-hmm. design.
0: Yeah, right. So what sort of things had you been doing? Um, like well, you said, structural yeah engineering is that like building bridges
1: and things yeah yeah anything (laughs) above the ground so there's like a a thing you know with engineering there's lots of different kinds um my choice was you know uh electrical chemical um environmental and civil and so like electrical seemed too hard I didn't really understand electricity um (laughs) I can't see it you know too complicated <laughs> chemical like i wasn't really that into chemistry again too hard to understand can't see it civil well that's everything you can see um it's everything on the ground so roads rail um you know it's water management um and then structural which is things you can see above the ground so buildings bridges um anything like that and mm-hmm. so that kind of made the most sense to me because i could see it and i could understand how i you know i could make that. And, um, so that's kind of where I ended up and, um, yeah, luckily I ended up working with this brilliant, um, consulting firm called Arup, which is a, um, which was started by a guy who was an architect, um, also a philosopher and an engineer. And he had this idea that if you worked closer with, You know the designers at the very start and with the people who were building it, you could create these really beautiful pieces of art. And so he started, I think, in the 1960s in the UK. He was Danish Mm -hmm. um, and created this firm of engineers who were really oriented towards the dream of the architect. Like what did they want to create Mm -hmm. and how could we bring the real world to that in a way that didn't like shoot down their ideas, but was like, okay, yeah, you want to put you know some crazy structure up here that can't be built well maybe it can be built if we you know changed it like this or used the physics in that way and so so he was you know he created this firm out of that and so um i i was lucky enough to fall into working for them and that's where i learned about um you know not necessarily being the artist yourself but you know making art come alive and um i think architecture is one of those disciplines where like They can create some crazy stuff like in the real world that Mm. exists, you know, (laughs) Um, and it's amazing to see what, what, you know, what people can come up with. Um, And and I I especially liked the kind of teamwork aspect of it. You know, um, you kind of needed a whole lot of things to come together to create these, you know, beautiful pieces. So I didn't work very long in that, um, you know, as a structural engineer, only a couple of years, but I worked in that firm for quite a while.
0: Yeah, right. doing
1: more research and development with them.
0: Yeah. So up until that point before this guy um, came up with this idea, was this was that a really sort of radical idea that people would work together in that way? Was it more like <laughs> people would have an yeah. idea and architects
1: would just do their
0: thing and people wouldn't sort yeah. of cross over?
1: I mean, I don't know. There's probably historians or people who were alive and working in that time that would know better. Um, it was always sort of shared with us Um as part of the cool age, you know, like about how it was not, you know, together. But I guess if you go back to like, you know, the idea of the Renaissance man, like art and science were very, very close, right? Mm, yeah. um, and um, I think as possibly as, um, you know, as society grows and as disciplines grow, you, you know, to be able to be an expert in your area, you have to get more and more narrow in your focus. Mm. And so it's very hard to be on top of everything anymore um, because it'll mean that you actually can't do that project. Like you can't make it happen. So, so you get, so individual people have to get more and more um, um, specialized. And so I wonder if like, you know, art fell off the way there, I think also Mm. like the economics of things changed. So um, the, the, the people with the, power in the built environment now which is what they call you know cities and things that get get built it's not necessarily the architect i think it used to be that you know you might commission an architect to do a design and then they might bring in like a um engineer and some contractors to build it and um but the the architect was like in control of the project i'm not sure it's totally like that anymore it's sort of shifted a little bit to um the person who owns the property being the um, you know the the person who's really making the big decisions, and so I'm not sure that we get quite as daring architecture anymore. Like, you know, would we have the Sydney Opera House mm. if, it, if it was 2022? Probably not. Yeah, that's that's a good, um, good way of looking at it. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. So I think like that that's probably changed, but yeah, I'm not sure what it was like mm. um, before. But in my view, it's always good to have um more people earlier on. yeah Yeah, working together because um often um often you can actually make the thing happen that everybody wants if you're uh there at the start it's just messier it takes longer yeah and it's got a higher chance of failure so a lot of the time (laughs) it's just easier to like go with what you know you know yeah that's what you're trying to do
0: Yeah, yeah no that's interesting you raised a point there that I'll bring you back to later. We won't dive into okay. that just yet, but I've written that down for later. Okay. But I want to talk about what Here you're is. doing right now. So you have yeah. used your extensive experience in your engineering and your designing background to create a business
1: um, yeah. called Milk Drop.
0: Can you tell us about that, please?
1: Sure. So, um, yeah, so I was working um, for this company and I went on maternity leave um, for my daughter who's now three, nearly four. And I found myself on the end of a breast pump to feed her, which I found to be quite a, um, shocking experience. I think, um, you know, we had trouble, um, feeding directly at the breast. Mm -hmm. And so I was pumping on a breast pump, like six to eight times a day, just trying to express milk for her. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with really damaged, nipples and I found it really painful and it just like after a while you know I dealt with it for a bit but after a while it started to really annoy me that this product had been made that it wasn't clear how to use it and it was hurting me but I still kind of had to um and I started to think about how I could make that different and so um I had seen these um experiments that people had done with soft robotics so like robotic um Uh, yeah like robotic creations that were made of soft silicon so it's like hands that could pick things up and I was like why aren't breast pumps made out of robotic hands I mean the reason is that it's really creepy and people just wouldn't accept that idea right it's super (laughs) creepy you know like everyone's always like why don't you just make it more like a baby I'm like would you put a fake baby on your breast to express milk like it it needs to be a little removed and and, um, anyway we've learned this since but so what I did was um I I um ordered a kit of silicon and a robotics kit and I started trying to build something that would feel better than a breast pump but still work. And within about, you know, one hour I ran into my own limitations of like how to use these things because I have no idea about robotics. So I called a friend, Daniel, who is a roboticist, yeah. and he introduced me to um, a friend of his who worked at um, Swinburne University as a prototyping coach. So basically students in any of the design um subjects who have their final projects and want to create you know a piece of furniture or a piece of metal or whatever mm-hmm. he's there in the lab helping them make it so he knows how to make stuff mm-hmm. and both of these guys are lovely and so we sort of started working together on um creating prototypes of breast pumps that would feel better i'm also married to a gp so we had all of this like insight into how the breast actually works um from sort of a medical perspective and so the four of us sort of sat around and just started Pumping out prototypes. And then every time I had to press pump, I would use try, one of them yeah. and, yep, try it out. Oh, Usually wow. it failed. And then we'd go back, 3D print another model, pour some silicon, try it again. And so we did that like 20 times. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like the creative bit. And then after that, it's all just been full on, you know, manufacturing, fundraising. Yeah. websites um <laughs> that kind of thing yeah. um but yeah so that's where I got to so yeah the product's called what, what we ended up doing was actually just creating a soft silicon pad that stretches over most breast pumps we didn't even redesign the breast pump yeah. um because we figured this would you know help more people they've already got a breast pump and then you just you know get this cushion and attach it over the top so that's what we've been doing um And we launched that in Australia last year and just launched in the US last month. So that's pretty exciting, helping a lot of women with pain and discomfort. Um, And then we're still also working on other products in the background as well, because that's fun.
0: Oh, good on you. That is such an awesome story, because it's like you've literally solved a problem, not just for yourself, but for everybody. (laughs) Like, that is so awesome Mm. that you can do that. You've got the skills. Yeah, you can, yeah. I love that.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not its not um, always so straightforward. Like um, <laughs> the first product that we did, um, you know, it worked for about 75% of people, which for, for in the medical world is insane, right? But um, about a quarter of people were finding they were collecting less milk because the cushion was kind of dulling the sensation of the pump. Uh, and okay. so then we were like, okay, well, what can we do about that? So we created a cushion that was thinner, like it had less material on it, mm-hmm. you know, sent that out to, the people it wasn't working for it did so we're like yes great you know then we're like oh but it doesn't fit everybody's nipple size because everybody's different so then we added both sizes so you're like just constantly um trying to find something that works for everyone mm. and I think um it's really easy to be like oh yeah you just like created this thing and then it works for everyone and it's amazing <laughs> it's never quite not like that, but that glossy <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a lot to improve and we you know yeah. we think we're sitting now at like about 90% so we we can help 9 out of 10 women um and one out of 10 unfortunately we you know we're still working on it but um you know we can't help but what what we do instead is like um have free trial for 30 days so you try it if it doesn't work send it back we'll refund you you know so we're not trying to add stress but is you know that's kind of our way of you know making sure that We're actually helping women rather than rather than sort of making it worse. So yeah, yeah, it's an interesting process.
0: Yeah. When did you sort of first start this process? What year was that?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it took about six months to do the design yeah. Uh, and then about 18 months to do the manufacture. Mm-hmm. And really the hold-up was not our design skill or a manufacturing capability. It was money, to be honest, and time. So, you know, you've got jobs. <laughs> Everybody's got jobs. I mean, yeah. I feel like it's like, um, who was it? Who was it that said like you, you need a room of one's own? Was it um Virginia Woolf, if I got the wrong English author. Anyway, someone was like mm-hmm. you know, women will never be able to write until they have an income and space. And um you know, Shakespeare's sister wouldn't have become Shakespeare just by virtue of being female, right? Because <laughs> yeah, or women, you know, you you um you don't have the luxury of being able to fail and of, of constant money. So anyway, we all have jobs and um, we had to sort of do it in our own time. So if if we were employed by Milk Drop now with funding, we um, probably would have only t- taken us sort of four weeks to do a design and then it might have been like nine months for manufacture. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So, so we sort of had this process of like, you know, in our spare time, making up these prototypes, testing them, redesigning them, you know, maybe we did like one, one a week or once, one every two weeks or something, you know, then we'd go and try and patent that and then take that around, apply for grants to get funding, mm-hmm. take that around to investors or accelerators, try and prove that there's a market without having a product to sell, you know, convincing people that this was worth investing in and then, you know, finally we managed to, you know, accumulate enough Funding and investment to then manufacture it. So it wasn't mm-hmm. that it took that long. It was that it took that long to get the the money to pay for it. You know, the tooling just for these just for reference, it's like forty thousand bucks to make a tool.
0: Yeah, right.
1: So like, if you're an existing company, yep. that's fine. But if you're starting from scratch, that's a lot of money. Yeah. You know, that's not, you're not you know, you know, it doesn't come past by easily. Um, and so yeah, so that's kind of what it took. So it was sort of 2 years from the idea to being in market and then you know it's really been a year and a half for us to even get enough traction to for people to know about us like the marketing is almost harder than the design
0: yeah it was like that was the i don't want to say that was the easy bit because yeah well it funny. Yeah. like and then all this other stuff that has to yeah. happen afterwards yeah, yeah exactly and, and i don't know if this is appropriate question to ask so you can you can say no if you want but because you've got money from other people are then are you accountable back to them to show them what you've made and everything and how it's all going does that feel really like nerve-wracking sort of like Um, I don't know if that's the word but yeah I feel pressure from that yeah
1: you can make it feel like it's full of pressure you know like it's always it's always a challenge to report back but you know we are We we have really good investors. We, you know, we have um, mostly private investors and then also the Victorian government. Um, And I think uh, it's a challenge. Yeah, like we write, I write like a monthly report back, right? And um, every time like something doesn't quite go right, you always find yourself wanting to put a spin on it and catching yourself and being like, no, just tell it how it is because next month, you know you're not going to be able to say this so i think uh, actually i've i've been able to take a lot of the lessons from working in big teams on big engineering projects from that that one of the good things about um you know working in construction or on big projects is that if it's a good culture there's no blame you just say what the situation is yeah. it, you know nobody's made a mistake on purpose or like you know your prototype hasn't failed on purpose you're not being lazy you're not misusing money you're trying your best to get something over the line it's really hard to do if it was easier to be done so mm-hmm. you just have to kind of um, make sure you don't fall into that trap of like treating your investors like it's the media you know like mm-hmm. um, that it has to be a, a a spin on a story or whatever so yeah, yeah I'm pretty blunt with where things are at um, we share as much information as we can um, or as we have mm-hmm. and the, usually the way it works is the investors are far less worried about the things I'm worried about than I am, you know, and (laughs) usually the, you know, usually, um, they're saying things like, no, 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 you got this, just keep going. Like, Mm. you know, or tell us about your thinking about this. And then they want to talk you through it. It's not like a reprimand relationship or a bad boss. It's like a group of people who want you to succeed. You got to tell them what's going on. If you if you yeah. want the help, that's yeah, kind of how I feel. Yeah,
0: and it's yeah. almost that nurturing sort of environment where if you've got yeah. a problem and they, because I guess they've yeah. had many years experience in business or yeah, certain it all the areas, they'd be like, well, yeah. actually, this isn't a big deal, like, you know.
1: Or, yeah, you know, or it is, idea. like, you know, yeah. hey, yeah, have you looked at this? Like, how come you haven't looked at this? You're like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing, you know. So mm-hmm. I think, like, it's just, um it depends how you frame it. And it could, I think if I was a little younger and, um you know, hadn't learned all of those other lessons it it would be an easy trap to fall into but I think um, yeah with a little bit of experience you're like oh no no, this is an asset this is awesome (laughs) I'm just gonna um, you know be grateful that these people want to be involved in this project and um, you know ask them for as much help as I can get and communicate as often as I can so Mm -hmm. I think um, yeah we've we've been really lucky Um, I'm sure it's not like that with everyone and um, I think also by the fact that this product is about women's health which is you know notoriously underserved and chronic pain for women is overlooked and uh, you attract you attract a certain kind of investor right yeah um yeah (laughs) you know they're already they're already thinking differently Mm. and they already probably really care about this so um it's a bit of a filter as well. Like it can be frustrating because like, oh, how come I'm not getting more investment? How come I am seeing like the same person as me also called Alex, but a dude, you know, raising twice the amount in half the time kind of thing. And you can get annoyed at that. But then when you look at who you've got, the quality is so good that Mm. you think, well, you know, I don't, yeah. So yeah, Mm. no complaints. Yeah. Good question though.
0: No, sorry, that's okay. I, I didn't. I didn't prewarn you with that. Well, I just thought about it as we were talking about. It. I thought, I wonder what that's like. Yeah, it sounds like it can be really stressful. Like it. it <laughs> yeah.
1: There's always there's always things that are going well and things that aren't going well and, um, yeah, you've just got to like bite the bullet and talk about the things that aren't going well. Mm. Um, because if you were in that position, you'd want to know and help is what you'd want to be able to help to. It's mm. like having kids, right? If they don't tell you what's going on, how can you help them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's
0: a whole new conversation, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man. So speaking of children, you mentioned yep. um, that you started this out with when you had your daughter. So, um, how old's your daughter now? She would be. Uh, she's turning four next month. Oh, Yeah, right. Yep. yep. And and that's your your only child. You've got one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We
1: had. Um, we have tried since, but I just keep having miscarriages, which sucks.
2: Oh, I'm so, so sorry.
1: Oh, that's okay. It happens to lots of people. Um. So yeah, it's just, it's been a fairly big gap. Maybe we'll be able to have another one. Maybe not.
0: Hey, I've got seven years
1: between mine. Never say never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, yeah. just sort of taking it easy with that. I think, you know, the last few years of the pandemic and also trying to grow a business and mm-hmm. I don't know, life's busy. My, my husband just is just about to sit his final exam for for um you know final final the last one after you know 15 years of study so like that's all been pretty full-on like we're just yeah just kind of trying to take it easy Mm.
0: What's your sort of your days look like? You said before about how you all had jobs and that. What do you is, is yep. this your main thing now? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So about a year ago, um, I moved to or almost a bit more than that, actually. I moved into full-time on Milkdrop. Yep. Um and uh but most people working with us are part-time. Um, we have a fully remote team, and I call um hyper or um, extreme flexibility with hours.
2: Yeah. Um, So
1: we have some people, you know, brilliant people doing um, marketing and content for us and, um, you know, two of the three of them are mothers and, you know, my view is like you work whatever works for you. So if you need time off, you take it. If you don't, whatever, if you want to work at midnight, that's fine. If you want to work at 7am, that's also fine. Mm -hmm. No rules and no requirements as long as, you're getting the work done. And yeah, as we all know, mothers are total uh, machines when it comes to getting work done because we don't <laughs> have time for bullshit. So, I mean, isn't it? <laughs> um yeah so like you know for the parents that's what we do and then we try to make sure that um for people who aren't parents that um you know they are able to use that flexibility how they want as well. So it's not just sort of something that's provided to one group of people mm-hmm. um because they made a choice. It's um everyone gets that. Um, and it seems to be working quite well so far. Um, but it's, it's super early days. Yeah. Yeah. So my days, I like to have a bit of structure actually. So I'm, I'm Monday to Thursday, you know, nine to five. Um, my daughter has daycare here Monday to Thursday. Um, and then on Fridays, I'll do, I'll sort of do a few hours. Um, for sort of Friday over the weekend, like we have customer service stuff and other things that need to happen on the weekend. So I kind of break that up, but I try not to do anything too taxing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the days like um, I work best in the morning. So I do like the hard work in the morning and then I move to the kind of bitsy tasks that you have as a business in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our design meetings once a week, always, um, and that's with those same two boys that um, I was working with at the start. Oh, that's awesome! And we, yeah, we basically um, try to either prototype a design that we're working on during that week, so we've got something to report back. Um, so we sort of operate on like a weekly cycle. But both of those guys are working in other jobs as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, we that that seems to be working quite nicely and moving fairly quickly. Um, yeah, and then you know it's a total mess whenever Greta's sick or we're sick or you yeah. know childcare closes for some reason or they issue random public holidays, you know, which is great mm-hmm. for people with jobs, but not if you're on your own business. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I sort of feel like on average we're getting about four days a week worth of work. So I've just tried to get really, really efficient. And um some days that works better than others. Mm. most of the time I feel like a failure and then every time every now and again um something good happens I'm like oh maybe I'm not such a terrible um business person after all
2: oh.
1: <laughs> yeah but I did learn one of the great things I did learn from one of our investors and mentors is to print out um, good reviews that you get or comments that people send you. And when you're having a crappy day, you just kind of read through those. And um, yeah, that does make you feel better because it's kind of like, you know, the whole reason I started was because I was annoyed that women weren't being, you know, that, you know, this, this product shouldn't be hurting women and that we could do a better job. And so, you know, when you hear that back that, Um, you've changed, uh, you know, know, your product has meant that someone isn't having pain anymore and they're able to feed their baby breast milk, which is what they really wanted to do. And, you know, they were feeling awful because they felt like they might have to give up and now they don't, you know, that kind of stuff. You're like, oh, that's really cool. You know, it's nice to have that effect.
0: Yeah. And never underestimate that because that I, I went through an experience with with my breastfeeding journey where at one point I was producing so much milk that my baby couldn't mm. latch and then they yeah. suggested that I use a shield, which was great because he could latch, but then it decreased my um, yeah. amount of production because the baby wasn't touching my breast. So it was, yeah. and and I went through a lot of issues. And yeah. when things finally were were good, you know, it changes your whole world. Like it literally changes oh, yeah. everything. You know, so I can imagine. I mean, yeah, know, I was lucky. I I never struggled with a lot of pain but I had other issues um so you
1: know it's oh it's and you think (laughs) about like the context that you're operating in right like you've got a woman here who um got pregnant stayed pregnant managed to have a baby and then if things aren't going super well with feeding or any other part of their babies like it is full-on especially in that first week or two after birth yeah so no matter how you had the birth, no matter how the baby's going, something is going wrong. Like nobody mm. cruises through this period. <laughs> and so this is the situation that you're in. And this is like, this is the point where we're kind of trying to help. And so I think like that always makes it pretty real. Mm. Um Sometimes, like you you kind of wish you were involved in something more fun. Like, you know, (laughs) when you go to do your marketing campaigns, you're like, oh, I'm so sick of like it being such a downer all the time. And then you're like, no, you just feel like that because you're four years past it. But Mm -hmm. um, back in that moment, yeah, any help is good help. And um, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: yeah. Yeah, because yeah, like when you I mean, I had a lot of experiences with um, postnatal depression and I'm sure you know all these little things that were happening were all all combining to make make this a a massive
1: oh it's just a huge it's a huge support.
0: yes that's it isn't it I remember with my with my second baby um because he was born he wasn't early um he had IUGR so in my when he was being made my placenta sort of stopped working about 26 weeks but no one brought it up so he was completely formed. All his organs and everything, like his lungs were mature. Everything, but he had no meat on his bones. Basically, he was oh. just skin and bone. So he was four pound fourteen, and he come out, oh. and it was like you could see every breath he took. You could see his diaphragm sucking. Like it was, it was. He looked like a scud. So yeah, um, it's hard. Um, to look like so, I yeah, couldn't. Yeah. I had these ideas that I, I'd, you know, I exclusively breastfed my first baby, and I said, "Yep, I'm going to do this with my second. But right from the very beginning he had to be on formula because he just had yeah. to be fed straight away through this, like the tube, the yeah. gav into his yeah. stomach. So they had me pumping. That's all I was doing yeah. was pumping. And yeah. I had, luckily they had an electric pump at the hospital. Mm. Because the only other pump I'd ever used was a manual one. And that was, yeah. Oh my God. Just not fun at all. Um, mm. Yeah. And it was like, they just like, just, just do it. And I was like, but how <laughs> like, you yeah. know, it was just, they wheel the TV in and show you this video Oh, that must be like 50 years old and mm. I don't know and and every time I'm not I'm not bagging um you know midwives at all but just mm. about every person had their own idea of how to attach and how yep. to latch and how to hold and how to this and it yep. was like oh man like I mean, you it to listen it, to. Yeah, exactly yeah um, yeah and and yep. I, you know I was in the public system so um, yep. Every time you rang that bell, you didn't know which nurse you were going to see, you know. Oh, it's the same in private. That sounds like you know it was the same in private. it was just like, my head, I I want to go home. I just want to go home and just do it one way. Just
1: pick a way and do it. Um, But then it has the questioning, like, well, is the one way that I'm choosing the right way? And, like, this is the biggest consequence decision in my life because I've got this baby I'm responsible for now. Like, if I do it the wrong way, will they get enough food? Like, it's just, it's just yeah I your story is not unfamiliar like yeah. um yeah. yeah um we've spoken with a lot of women now and that that whole like conflicting information mm-hmm. um thing is yeah it's everywhere yeah and um not always ending up with the best outcome for the for the mum or the yeah. um baby so yeah
0: that's it isn't it um yeah, they used to say to us when we'd ask, what what do we do? What should we do with the baby? And they'd go, every baby's different. And yeah. you know, it would drive us crazy because we know that's true now. But at the time when yeah. you've got no idea what you're doing and it's your first baby and you just yeah. want someone to tell you what to do. Yeah. And, um, yeah. In the end, my husband said, if I hear every every baby's different, one more time, I'm bloody going. Like it was just like, come on. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Hindsight's yeah. a beautiful thing, but gee whiz.
1: Well, you know, like one of the reasons why we don't, you know, know that much is because we don't invest in the research to learn that much. Mm. So there's, there's, you know, good evidence base about skin to skin and good evidence base about a whole lot of things, but not, mm. um, not everything. And so quite a bit of it is kind of left up to um, people's individual experience with what they've seen Um or just kind of intuition about stuff, and that's fine. Um, but if if we researched the lactating breast like we researched other body functions, mm. you know, the same amount of money, uh, we would know a lot more. There would be much more coherent programs and, you know, you wouldn't left be left feeling like that. Mm. Um, so, you know, part of this is is, you know, we have no problem saying, Um, all women should breastfeed and it's best for baby, blah, 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 blah. But then, you know, where are the programs and funding to support having someone there in the hospital who's not run off her feet looking after all the other babies that just got born? Mm. Um, You know, where's the funding to provide you home care? Like we do have these people who are super skilled and really good at what they do, but we don't have funding for them. Like, you know, so I think a lot of this is, um, you know, I kind of see like problems around the places like. Are these problems that can feasibly be solved, you know, um, in science, or are these like problems mm-hmm. that can feasibly be solved with just a bit of cash? Yeah, and it's yeah. just we haven't chosen to put our cash in that area. Yeah. Uh, it's a little cynical, but I think it's true.
0: No, I agree with that. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I'll, I'll say something cynical. If it was a man's problem, <laughs> they'd uh, they'd put more money. would be it. fixed <laughs> by now. We wouldn't even
1: have have to have babies. It'd mm-hmm. It'd all be done.
0: Yeah. Pain free. Um, yeah, that's another one. what i want to ask and i'm not asking you to give away your secrets or anything but um with the other you said you're working on some other things are they things that are born from that similar like experiencing something or seeing something that you've you've got this passion yeah helping
1: yeah yeah it's all about breast pumps at the moment um Mm -hmm. like we would love to do more products like one big area that i've been really interested in is incontinence it's another one of these like everybody has it yeah that uh you know um so but um, you know, what we're really good at and what we've learned how to do is silicon products and um, and things that uh, have something to do with the human body. So, um, yeah, so we're still working on breast pumps and we're working on um, creating a, um, you know, these are just cushions at the moment, but we're working on a full breast pump. So that's what we're doing. But oh. in terms of how that works, I'll probably keep that under wraps oh, for a absolutely. longer. Not really. um, <laughs> Uh, it'll be a while before it's out so um oh, yeah that's what we've been working on yeah. um which has been fun yeah hard fun. yes <laughs> fun slash hard um yeah.
0: yeah when you say about incontinence it's really funny all of a sudden it's almost like it's cool to have the incontinence undies and it's like, where were they 15 years when, ago? We no,
1: to them. have a woman who needed them oh to design God. them, right? Yeah. This is yeah. another reason why we need more women in STEM, right? You know, okay. um, that you have a habit of um, solving problems that you see. If you don't see the problem, you don't solve it. So I think, you know, the this kind of world of um, these yeah, like where was that when I was, when I was pregnant and I was suffering from this? I think yeah. we'll see less and less of that as we go or like we'll start to see these problems solve more and more as, mm. you know, you start to see these professions that are in charge of designing things um, start to have more women in them or, you know, mm. people who identify as women who are having those problems. So I think it's only going to get better. But, yeah, mm. there's a lot. Once you start scratching the surface, you're like, oh, and that, oh, and that, oh, I like that, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So on that, do you think that it's um like because i know with the schools they're always saying you know girls getting into stem and all that sort of stuff and at the other end of it having women who are the ones with the money i guess who are the investors is it sort of a bit of both it's like encouraging the girls to break through these glass ceilings i suppose or the boys club or whatever um yeah but then at the other end having having the women who who i'd say yes i'm passionate about this because it's a women's issue and i want to support it yeah
1: it's like my grandpa always used to say, like, follow the money. He was Lithuanian, had a very thick accent. And, um, <laughs> you know, follow the money. Where's the money coming from? And it kind of does make sense. Like, you know, why aren't these problems solved? Because, like I said before, you know, it could have taken us four, six weeks to make this thing. It took us two years because we had to convince people to give us the money. Now, we were able to convince them, and that was awesome. Thank you. Um, But um, there are plenty of people who aren't able to convince um you know other people to fund to fund these sorts of things and um i think yeah you know when you look at the proportion of startups that are led by women um that are funded it's a lot lower like there's you, you can google all of this like it's pretty it's pretty dire yeah
0: um
1: and there's a lot of arguments why like people say oh well there's not as many women asking and not as many women in technology and so then you say yeah but why you know um I don't think there's anything innate about girls and boys when they're young about their problem solving abilities or their ability to design or do art or anything like that I think it comes a bit later yeah um and so, yeah, I think it's sort of, you know, what are we teaching them? What are we making look exciting and yeah. cool? Yeah. Um, yep. What, um, you know, you have a lot more often um, people say they have more uh, women enrolling in engineering disciplines such as humanitarian engineering and environmental engineering. Um, and then we start putting all of these, like, stereotypes on women. Like, they just want to work for their community. They want to work for environment. Like, mm. they don't want to do dirty stuff, you know, so that, that yeah. the you know, there are little like flashes everywhere. I guess my point is that it's very complex, um, mm-hmm. but um, it it is um, you know multi um, multifactorial, which is like a fancy way of saying we don't really know. And there's lots of things that happen. But you know, part <laughs> yeah. of it is funding, part of it is education, part of it is society, part of it is um, you know we're we're not putting enough effort into retain people. Part of it is like they're dropping out after. Having babies because it's too hard to get back into work. Like, yeah. there's just so much stacked up. It's literally um, the, to prevent it's this from happening. <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah.
0: Like in a nice way, but it, yeah. we live in that in that society, and the odds will be stacked against us in you know, all yeah. those things. And no,
1: yeah, and I don't think anyone's doing it intentionally no, anymore. No, I like, agree. It's with moved that. to this yes. new phase where it's kind of just like hung around, um, and um, those systems have been designed in a way that are like that, you Mm -hmm. know, no one person in that system is like, I'm going to push women down, maybe they are, but they've never said it to me. And I haven't actually seen that, but what I have seen is, you know, maybe you go and pitch your idea and they're like, Oh, I'll just text my wife to find out how she found pumping. You're like, no, how about you go and investigate the market and take a look at the opportunity and think about this as a solution in the same way that you would investigate any other pitch or any other product, you know, maybe someone wants to, I don't know, turn petrol cars into electric cars. You wouldn't go and ask your mate who drives a car, whether or not that's a good idea. You would do your own research at a like, you know, market scale. Mm -hmm. So it's stuff like that, where, you know, it's not intended to, to be sexist or whatever, but it kind of ends up like that way because we have all of these biases. So mm, I think, yeah. you know, it's hard to hard to combat, but there are people who are trying to combat it. You know, there are plenty of um, groups where they're actively, you know, recruiting not majority female investors necessarily, but um, trying to find founders who are, have women, you know, running their companies or whatever mm. um, and presenting those to people who have the cash, um, you know, there's funds, government funds that are set up to try to s- sort of make up that difference that women don't see in funding. So if they're, mm-hmm. if they're receiving, you know, 50% of the funding or less of a man, you know, equivalent man, so like a man is able to raise a million dollars and the woman has to raise 500000 or something like that, mm-hmm. um, then the governments are stepping in to try to make up that gap. You know, there's plenty of people doing lots of good things. So it, it'll work, but, you know, sometimes it needs a bit of a kick up the bum too.
0: Yeah, but that is good that you know everyone's. I feel like everyone's aware of, like you said, the systems that have are in place and have yeah. wiggled yeah. my hands like they're yeah. just floating around us. It's not like someone's standing yeah. there, you know, enforcing all this stuff, it's just the world no. we live in.
1: Um, it is, yes, and, and it doesn't and, make and it, so it better, in some ways, it makes it harder because you can't put your finger on it, like, yeah, um, you know, I. I sort of, it, it it it's like, you know, back in the 60s, if you had a person who was working, you know, who happened to be a woman who was probably a secretary and, and someone hits her on the bum, like yeah. clearly sexist harassment. Yeah. That never happens. These, it doesn't happen so much these days. It's sort of all under the, you know, it feels like it's more under the radar. It's not as easy mm-hmm. to point to. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously there's lots of cases where that's not the, you know, the case and there's a spectrum and, you know, mm. um, really serious stuff happening you can see it all over the news um, and not on the news, but, but for those sort of like little tiny things that are happening during the day, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't call out all of it. um, But you do know when you look at it empirically, the results are that women are getting funded less. Women's problems are getting solved less. Women's pain is more overlooked. You know, all of this stuff on, um, you know, when you look at it in the big picture is definitely happening. So, yeah. how do do we go about addressing it I'm not really Mm. sure I'm sure there are much more experienced people who know more about what they're talking about
0: but you know what but you're part of what uh, I don't want to say you're part of the solution that sounds like a really (laughs) cliche I think but you literally are you're in the trenches doing the work by creating these products and by getting women involved in making these products and funding these products and I think that's fantastic because it has to start somewhere literally like what i always yeah. say when i read things about how to make change it's like but where do you start like where do you actually start but i feel like what you're doing is is
1: yeah well you start with what you can control right like um you know there are plenty of um businesses that are aimed at trying to improve that postpartum experience or the the fertility experience or
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: plenty of them um you know some of them are based on Um, building up communities of women, you know, that's like what you're doing, right? Um, So that happens to be your skill. I'm not good at that. I'm good (laughs) at designing things. So this is the one thing I can change. So I think it's just, you just like, you know, you look at the, all of the things that are in your sphere of concern Mm -hmm. and you look at then the next ring down, which is your sphere of influence. You can't actually change it, but maybe you can influence it a bit. Mm -hmm. And then there's your sphere of control. So what can you do in that sphere of control that's going to have the biggest influence, and then maybe over time you can make that change. But, I mean, it's hard. We've got, you know, COP27 or whatever it is, this happening while we're recording. Yeah. Um, you know, oh. these people you know, haven't been able to make change on, like, such an obvious threat. So I think, like, change is hard. Yeah, um, yeah I think you just got to kind of do what you can control and hopefully don't go you know don't let it sort of derail you too much when it doesn't change as quickly as you'd like yeah
0: that's that's a good way of looking at it yeah Mm. So mm-hmm. when you were before you had your daughter um were you working like full time or yep? and mm. then how did how did you sort of feel about that change of then becoming a mum and having your focus almost solely on your daughter how, did you go through any sort of i don't want to say existential crises,
1: but yeah. how was that experience for you um i didn't find it too bad my husband's really involved in our daughter, like we're definitely 50, 50, maybe he's 60, 40. Um, We were also um, um, at the time of the, so she was actually my second pregnancy. I'd had a first and it had ended in a um, a stillbirth at like 20 something weeks. And so I was quite anxious throughout the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so that was my challenge. It was like, am I going to get through this? And so we'd moved back into mom and dad's house and we were just all living as I know it sounds very old school but um European I don't know but we loved it. So we were yeah. living um in my parents' house had the baby and um everyone was there to help. So I didn't it was a shock in that yeah now I've got this child and feeding wasn't going super well mm-hmm. but once we kind of got through that um I actually really liked it. I didn't expect to. I thought that um I thought that I'd um, hate not working, um, but I was kind of working on Milk Drop. Like I had things to work on, um, and I've always, I've, um, you know, as long as yeah, and and I, I wasn't one hundred percent on the baby, so uh, it was sort of quite balanced. Um, I'm probably not remembering a whole lot of stuff, but yeah, I guess we had three adults, four adults for one child, and um, and we had help and meals and time to walk outside and you know if I needed a shower mum or dad would take Greta if Andrew was working like it just wasn't sort of as stressful so I think I had a lot more community um and also all of my friends had been through it too and I'd been kind of dealt a blow beforehand so Mm -hmm. I'd already had that like oh maybe you can't have everything you wanted and it's not all that easy Mm -hmm. so when I did have that when I did have Greta I was just thankful that you know I could have a baby at all um -hmm. so I think yeah it wasn't such a big deal for me I didn't like how um when before that when I'd said that I was getting married how I suddenly like people were saying like oh when are you going to stop working or like you know (laughs) when you got pregnant the first time everyone was commenting about it and um feeling like I had to go into a different part of the business to keep my job because you know engineering can be pretty full-on and so like all of that sort of stuff. I just, again, it's like the unsaid thing, but that was more about a phase in life. And, you know, I did work in a company that really wanted women to stick around and they really supported me and I, f- you know, felt very loved and included and all the rest. So it wasn't sort of that much of an issue for me. Maybe that's just, yeah, maybe it's in hindsight. Um, I did find that I wanted to get back to working within about four weeks yeah. as in, not working, but like working on something. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't like um, just, um, you know, I didn't settle in very well to just being with my baby. Like I, I found myself like walking down to the cafe, getting her asleep and then, you know, getting out my laptop and investigating something about silicon, you know, but that's just yes. what worked for me. And yeah. so, yeah, I was lucky enough that I could do that and, you know, had full maternity leave and all these other privileges. So,
0: yeah. Mm. um, But he, like, Something that I do talk to mums about on this show is having that outlet because Mm. we can't. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody that can, but it's not me. (laughs) I can't be Mm. 247 thinking about my children. Like, I would go insane. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I think that that's normal. Like, I mean, we're also, I think when you, you know, you have, yeah, like identity is an interesting one because, I mean, I had Greta at 35. So, you know, you've got your life. Like, I didn't. change my name in marriage because I've I'd always been called by my last name Mm -hmm. all the way through school and uni so it kind of was my identity I'd, I'd already worked for a decade like I'd you know felt like I'd sort of fought my way through a fairly male I wouldn't say I don't say dominated because they weren't aggressive but yeah majority male environments like um so I sort of felt like I'd like gotten to this point. And then actually what, what I had trouble with was then all of a sudden you're sitting on the end of a pump. You're like, Oh no, wait, I'm just a mammal that's here to be milked for the benefit of my offspring. That felt like shit. Sorry. That felt terrible. No, you can say that. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, that's why I sort of started to design that because I felt like, well, no, hang on. Women who've been through this shouldn't be feeling like this. I think I did a survey at the very start to see if anyone else had these issues. And for every 10 women, seven had nipple pain or discomfort using pumps and eight felt like a cow. Mm -hmm. So, like, I expected the physical thing, but I didn't expect everyone to feel that way emotionally about a product. Mm. Um, And Mm. the other thing that I didn't like was that people are on pumps because they're trying really hard to feed their baby breast milk because that's what they want to do if that's what they want to do. So, but then they're kind of like given this experience where like this thing's wheeled in at them. They're not really explained how to use it. Um, It's sort of like um, a punishment, but these women should be held up, you know, like they should be. They should be held up on pedestals. These people are yeah. sitting on the end of a machine to milk their breasts, to give breast milk. Like they're trying really hard. They're really, yeah. really hard. Especially, you know, some of them are, are pumping like 12 times a day. They're up in the middle of the night turning this machine on, you know. Yeah. I think so that kind of bothered me. And I think, um, yeah, I, I did struggle with that. And that's why I, I created these. Um, but I kind of didn't necessarily see it as just motherhood or, or my particular reaction to it. I saw it more as here's another case of where women's experience is overlooked. Mm. And and I didn't want to also, you know, be too critical of these breast punk companies because they're trying to design something that is affordable, that fits lots of people. The human race is super diverse. Like how do you get something that works for everybody's anatomy and physiology? Like it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And people expect a lot, um, you know, of their products for a certain price. Like I, I get how they've, come into being and I'm glad that they exist whatever but I just felt like you know we could we could do a better job yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah no that's so good like um I can definitely relate to this the cow feeling and but then <laughs> feeling feeling oh, like literally like an animal like like you said you're supposed to like if you should be revered if you're feeding your child and then yeah. you go out of your way to, yeah. to get the milk out of your body, to continue feeding your child, you should you should be held up on a pedestal, you know. Yeah, And just yeah. The, like I saw, I see it all the time on my people I follow on Instagram, but all these, particularly in America, they've got an, uh, something's going on over there with the, they don't have um, as much um, maternity leave or any maternity leave, like it's not set up mm-hmm. like here in Australia. Yeah, and, it's
1: tied to their employment. Right? Yeah, 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 that's, yeah.
0: And, yeah. and the fact, if anyone actually wants to, pump it's like what what do you want to do what are you talking about like it's not actually <laughs> something that like employers um give any credit to um and I know from myself as a as a musician like I've had to pump a lot of times like most mm. like gigs when you're away from the kids for you know more than at least three hours you know you're gonna have to pump mm. and being in toilets or you know oh, yeah. out in the car mm-hmm. and it's like you yeah. just feel like you're like shamed shunned away from everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's just it's pretty it's rough. Hard. I think,
1: I mean, America's a fascinating place, right? Like mm. they they have these conditions, but then they also have um, you know, there's an entire company set up there. They're called Mamava, um, and they create um pods for lactation. So you can pop them in stadia or you can put them in the airport or at university campuses or downtown or whatever.
2: Yeah.
1: Um and there's another one company called Milk Stalk, which will Collect your milk, pumped milk, like say you're away for work for a couple of days, yeah. and you know you need like you need to pump if you're feeding, you need to keep that milk supply up. So um they'll pick up your milk and send it back to your baby, um, wherever they are. Like, so there's all these, like, it's it's not like yeah, the US is a very diverse and fascinating place. Um, but yeah, they have terrible maternity, like terrible government um parental leave schemes and like pe- people are kind of on their own but it does mean they have these other services around and businesses that kind of help them it's sort of it's yeah strange, it's a bit, it? a bit difficult to grasp sometimes coming from um coming from australia we've definitely learnt a lot yeah. um starting to sell these cushions over there mm.
0: You're listening to The Art of Being a Mum with my mum, Alison Newman. Um, so, something else I like to talk about um, is the topic of mum guilt. And mm-hmm. I find this really fascinating one because some mums I've had on have actually had to Google it to find out what it was. And I think that is brilliant. I wish that was me um what's your thoughts on mum guilt um what it is or how to deal with it yeah like do you have you experienced it or did did you have to google it like where are you at with it
1: yeah I mean um mum guilt uh it depends how you define it like do I think I'm being a good mother to my daughter yes um have I felt guilty that I'm not around for her sometimes? But I'm not not around for her. Like she's mm. she's living her best life for sure. Yeah. Um, she has a lot of people looking after her. So, like I said, my husband is there a lot. Um, you know, she's she's got a lot of friends, and um, because we live in a small town, the community around her is quite strong. You know, mm. she knows her friends' parents, that kind of thing. Mm. So I I think you know, she's having a good childhood. She's safe. She's learning lots. She's, you know, she's pretty lucky. Um, so I don't feel guilty about my parenting, but I do have the mum guilt about work. (laughs) So, you know, am I working fast enough? Am I working hard enough? Am I delivering for these people who have invested in us? Like, do they realize that I am only working nine to five? Um, you know, are they okay with that? Because there's this culture in that kind of startup world of, you know, working hundred hours a week, which I just can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, it also comes when, you know, my daughter's sick and I can't work that day. So there's this like constant feeling of never getting through the pile of stuff you got to get done. Mm-hmm. And I've had to, yeah, learn ways to deal with that and not get riled up by it so much. Um, But, yeah, I find that side of it really, really hard. But in terms of, like, am I being a good enough mum compared with the mums I see on Instagram? Yeah. (laughs) Most of the stuff that I see on there is, like, material stuff, not, Mm -hmm. you know, like, are they dressed in the right clothes? Well, no, she's always filthy. But that's because she's been playing outside in the mud, which I think is a good thing. So I think um, I just, um, yeah, I, I don't really have that too much. I did feel guilty that I wasn't feeding her properly, but since she's gotten older mm-hmm. and, you know, we I, I was sort of worried, like, oh, you know, well, breast milk is, you know, it says here that it's better for them and, you know, better for their development. And like, what if I'm stunting her growth or or making it too big? Or like what if, you know, she's not able to um, you know, develop emotionally because she's been fed formula, all that stuff, like at four. There is nothing wrong with this kid. And it's you know, yeah. like, I think, um, I think I sort of, in the sort of emotion of that time, I think I took overall statistics um, too seriously. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm sure there's cases where that's the truth, but, you know, you're not looking at it holistically. Like, mm. you know, um, she's got you know, she's lucky enough to have parents who love her and look after her and she's fine. So I think um, I'm much less concerned about that and that that was like a fairly big lesson. And yeah. so, you know, when you go through all those milestones of kidhood, um, you know, toilet training, re- like we're going through reading right now, like I'm not too fussed about it. I just figure, well, you know, she'll figure it out when she's ready. We'll just keep teaching her. She seems to like to learn, yeah. you know, the only time I get upset is when she's not nice to other kids. Um, and I think, oh, God, am I raising a psychopath? Um, but, but like, you know, all of that is fixable as well. So I think, like. And it's all um, pretty age appropriate too. <laughs> yeah, like, I, yeah, I just don't get too stressed about that. And um, I think she'll, you know, she'll be fine. She's, mm. she's, she's not the one um, that, you know, we need to be improving things for. Mm.
0: No, that's a really great answer. Yeah, really well said. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering if um no, well, when before when you talked about living with your parents and having perhaps that that village that we don't sort of mm. see so much every day now, and and you talk about um, coming from a European background, I wonder if that. I'm not a psychologist, by the way. I'm just <laughs> I have ideas yeah. and I say them out loud. Um, I wonder if that's contributed, like that level of support has allowed you to relax and mother the way you want a mother and not feel any outside you know expectations from outside because mm. you're really secure in the unit that you've got possibly
1: yeah I, I think so and I've never really been particularly like that concerned about peer maybe peer pressure or like um perception of others I think I The thing I do care about is if someone felt that I was being unkind or untruthful or mean or anything like that, I would be totally distressed. Mm. But in terms of like someone judging me to be parenting the right way or cool or mm. any of that stuff, I've never cared and I don't think I ever will. And so I think that really helps because um, going into parenthood, you're just like, well, this is, you know, this is what I think is good for my kid. And I just look around at the other parents and I see and I like take what I like and don't do what I don't like. And, mm, yeah. you know, every kid's different, every parent's different, everyone's juggling their own thing. Like I actually mm. think there's probably less judgment than we think and a lot of it is like actually coming from ourselves. So, yeah, yeah, I I mean, I've got really supportive parents and, um, you know, my mum's a super practical, like pragmatic woman. And, you know, sometimes I'd go to her and say, Oh, do you think I'm doing this right? And she's like, Oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, so I just <laughs> like, she just sort of shuts it down. You're like, all right. yeah, yeah cool." And you're like, well, that's so not a drama. Right.
0: Yeah. That's, that's obviously. Yeah. Not, so I think it's I nice. It
1: yeah. <laughs> it's nice to have that grounding. Cause I think if you're yeah. like on your phone and you start Googling this stuff, you're like, Oh, oh my God, I'm doing all yeah. these terrible things. And <laughs> I just, I think, you know, look, you can't, Yeah, one thing that made me feel better was like, okay, you look at like Bluey, for example, and those parents are like super involved in their kids' lives and into their imaginations or whatever, but then you realise it's a seven-minute episode. Mm -hmm. There's seven minutes of their life. (laughs) You've got like 24 hours times 60 minutes, whatever that is. Like you you just can't perform to what's out there. So as long as you're keeping them safe, they know they can come to you if they've got a problem, they get to try different Things and meet different people, nurture their curiosity. Like, I just, you know, we're going to stuff them up in some way. <laughs> you can't predict it. Like, you just got to kind of wait I to see, see what happens and try to build their, like, I think you just got to build their sort of building blocks of coping and joy and curiosity and hope that they come to you when they have problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it? Oh,
0: that's don't so know. well said. That is, yeah. that's yeah no I really like that it's very yeah st- like he, I can I can tell you're a lot like your mom like that pragmatism
1: and <laughs> straightforward it's like
2: yep it's, it's very, very I mean story. I'm not yeah
1: like I still uh so um we live like I said we live in Brighton there's a lot of um people who are very good at sport here I'm not one of them but um the kids around here are very free you know right. they're yeah. at the bike track they ski they climb they do all sorts of stuff and they're very um I would say, like, um, physically aware, like physically pretty good. Um, And so and and some of the other parents are a lot better at this than I am. Like they'll let their kids, you know, experiment, like, you know, ride down that steep slope that ends in a, you know, cliff. And they'll be totally fine with it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is my groupest child. Like I don't want her to hurt herself. I just want her to be competent, you know. So I definitely have issues with that. Yeah. Um. But I also know that if she learns her limits now, it'll be better for her later. So yeah. I mean, you know, Mm. I'm not perfect. No parent is.
0: But it's that balance, isn't it? It's because that's the thing. We still have to sleep at night. You know, like even if they want to do like jump off the roof, it's like, well, hang on a sec. That's where I draw the line. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have a boundary. Yeah. Yeah. Like my um my boys are so active and so into everything and yeah they're great I just let them go to the point where I don't feel comfortable (laughs) it's like I figure if they think they can do it they probably can and if they're willing to give it a go that probably means
1: it will go okay
2: (laughs) yeah and if they don't
1: they'll learn like I think yeah where I draw the line is like how they treat other people so yeah um I think that stuff I try to come down fairly firm on um and sort of yeah treating other people with respect and being kind and all of that but like in terms of everything else I, I don't know just go for it right
0: <laughs> we've and had a kids. few broken arms <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's part of life isn't it yeah uh, the rite of passage yeah um Yeah, so I wanted to I wanted to ask you. Um, back in the beginning, we talked. You mentioned a little bit about how art and science used to be really close together, um, mm-hmm. and you mentioned it a little bit in your email that you sent to me, and it really got me thinking. Yeah. Um, at what point did these two sort of practices, for want of a better word, start to go uh-huh. away from each other? You know what I mean? Because you're right. Rena- the Renaissance period was massively art, massively science, all of that yeah, you know thinking. and then art somewhere has just floated off into this thing that's mm-hmm. it's necessary for pretty much everything. Things need to be designed like the design element yeah. of art, but then almost the, I don't want to say the frivolous element of art be, because it's not, but not frivolous. probably yeah. seen like that in terms of a capitalist society. So things sort of, yeah, what's your take on that?
1: Uh, I think it's shocking that we don't um fund it. More like uh, one of the sort of down point down. Um, down points for me. It was, I don't know if it was last year or the year before when the we started um, defunding pure mathematics and arts degrees and things mm-hmm. because they don't have practical application. And as someone who is in the business of practical applications, um, I I I think that is the stupidest thing that we could do as a country. Mm-hmm. You know our our new ideas the things we're going to be using in 30 years time come from people doing art or doing pure mathematics or doing pure you know even studying history like these are mm. these are things that you know don't have like a monetizable tangible outcome yet mm. they're absolutely critical you know you, yeah. they're so linked the idea that universities have to beg industry to do research projects because the only research projects that have value are ones that industry can use. I just, I just think it's disgusting. Mm -hmm. You know, we've, we are a country that has benefited off, you know, really strong science for such a long time. And then, I don't know, 2015, 20 years ago, we started defunding it. Now we're like the lowest um, spend on research and development um, as a proportion of GDP in, in the whole OECD. I think, you know, that is really short-sighted to me mm,
0: Yeah.
1: when it comes. And so that's just like, the that's just, you know, if you think about it as a spectrum from like engineering through mathematics or applied mathematics, mathematics. Um, and then you get to these humanities and art, like,
2: mm.
1: you know, we're, we're struggling at applied mathematics right now, funding that. And yeah. to me, that's all wrong in terms of art. I think, um, you know, there are people who are mixing these together, and um but it it feels more like a luxury than common place. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be like one artist in residence uh, might come in and do a few research projects or something like that, but it's not ever part of um how we function so much. and I, I think that's a real shame, and I think it's going to bite us in the ass soon. Mm. Uh, maybe it already is. Um, And I think art is really important for communicating and exploring how we feel about things. I think that um, art is responsible for, you know, going into the sort of imaginary world and dreaming up what things could look like. And if you can't dream up what they look like, how can you possibly make them? Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I so, yeah, I think it's I think it's really important. I used to I, I once um, had this workshop, a guy in um, in our company was working with some city designers um, and um, government you know people who are in charge of designing cities and he used to run these workshops for people and on day two or three he would put a creative writing piece up on the walls like he would go home and write this story about the future of this city from the perspective of a person and then the whole exercise in the workshop would get these you know very pragmatic people to go and highlight the things in that story that kind of like got them thinking and then you know and then the next the next part of it was like okay well what could we create today that would help us test whether that idea could exist? Now, that whole exercise came from him being able to do some really, really beautiful creative writing that got people thinking. And so, yeah, to me, like, all of that is critical. And, you know, um, and, yeah, just because it's not... um, Monetizable doesn't mean it doesn't have value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you can argue that the case for so many other different things. Like just because our ecosystem is not monetizable doesn't mean it doesn't have trillions of dollars of value in all of the things it does for us clean air, clean water, all of these, yeah. you know, safe climate to, to live in,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, yet we devalue them because we can't monetize them straight away. So I think that that's a real issue that we're going to have, you know, we're facing at the moment and we're going to have to get our heads around you know the value of things that are intangible Mm. um anyway that's my rant on it yeah no I look honestly I don't don't know know how to fix it yeah yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah. that's it isn't it like it really it frustrated the hell out of me in COVID and I I know you're probably in Victoria you you had it a lot worse with the lockdowns than we did but the thing that shit me was that the sport kept going like the all of the AFL footballers could travel around Australia do what they want but all of the arts like yeah. at a very basic level like i had gigs cancelled um mm. you know and then you've got people like want people traveling interstate to do concerts they couldn't do it um yeah. and but then all of a sudden you'd have forty thousand people at a football match and it was like yeah what is going well, on and yeah. someone said to me it's because it doesn't make as much money or you know it's it done money stuff <laughs> it's
1: like, but you look uh, at the stuff that we look at the things that we identify ourselves as even as a culture like they're not, I mean, sport is a part of it, but it's there's a huge cultural value to these things. Mm. And even within the arts, like I was listening to Richard Flanagan, the author, speak about the value of writing versus film. He's not saying that film should be de-invested in, but he was just saying like, you know, Australian authors, like we have a, an enviable, enviable, you know, um, culture of writing here which actually is a very, it sounded like it was a fairly new thing. Like Australia used to be looked at as like an uh, an outpost of British writing, right? Yeah, like yeah. British authors will write and then Australians will buy it. And then somewhere along the way they started investing in Australian stories
2: mm.
1: and, you know, it's been remarkably successful, but with hardly any funding. And you see, you're just like, oh, there's all these parts of the arts that are so critical to who we are and what we do. And I just, I think we've kind of like skewed over to this, like, um you know practical which is great. I, I don't have a problem yeah. with that. But I it just obviously yeah. I'm benefiting from it. But I just it just makes me a little bit sad. Mm. And um I yeah, I I sort of um yeah <laughs> I do remember this one. I had this friend at uni who's um who was who was talking to his dad he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got this friend, Alex. And his dad was like, oh, yeah, what does she do? And he was like, oh, she's studying engineering and commerce. And then his dad was like, oh, charming. And so my friend my friend told me this and I was, like, super offended at the time because I was like, how oh, dare you, you know, I'm doing all these great things. And then as I've gotten older, I'm like, oh, I get your point. Like, these are not, these are very practical things that are very useful, but, like, what am I actually contributing to here like what am I really learning like am I actually getting an education or am I just like you know learning how to get stuff done which is a useful skill but um you know shouldn't be at the expense of people um you know interpreting the world and thinking about how um you know telling stories and um thinking about how things could be different imagining how things could be different which is where I see you know arts all arts could be if they were funded better Mm. Yeah.
0: No, I totally agree with all that. It's just like, I think they cut the CSIRO fund. Like they just, was that the liberal government that did that? Mm. I can't remember when it happened. Um, Yeah. yeah, And I just think, Oh, like you said, it's going to bite us in the ass and it might already be doing that, but there has to come a point where all of a sudden they go, Oh shit. (laughs) We've stuffed this up. Like, yeah. And this obsession with everything having, like you said, the the monetization, if you can't make money out of it, It just diminishes the value of it so much. And that really is something that really annoys me.
1: Yeah. But, (laughs) I mean, I I guess, like, the consolation is at the community level, people still love it. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. you remember the first gig you played when you got back, right? (laughs) Like, <laughs> where people are crying, you know. Like I think, you know, it's yeah. pretty overwhelming. And even even after, you know, it's been what a year and a half since lockdowns here. Mm. And anytime I see live music, I'm still super emotional about it. And everyone is. So I think yeah. at the community level, like people get it.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So,
1: yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's. it's I guess it's awkward. easy to get down about. I'm not in <laughs> that position, but.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I just don't like the way that. I don't know. You're right about like people, it's the people in front of you that make the difference and then Mm. the people that make the rules and tell everyone what to do, especially with all that lockdown stuff. It's like it just shows you what they think of it and it's like even the people that aren't the performers, you know, the people that weren't allowed to dance for ages, like everyone Mm. was frustrated at how this whole Mm. industry um, was being judged. I don't know, Mm. just... anyway yeah. i got to stop now so...
1: <laughs> no 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 i i can i can understand
0: With you, when you were growing up, did you have um, like your mum, your mum sort of these cultural norms that I like to sort of look at about where you learnt your stuff, I suppose? And you have talked about how your mum, you know, that pragmatic nature to sort of, mm. um, yes, yeah, that's fine or no, that's not. Um, did she work um, like after she had you or anything like that? to sort of show you how you could do it I guess yeah (laughs) probably not at the time Um, you're realizing that you know you weren't taking notes but you know what I mean
1: (laughs) yeah I mean so I I mean I was I was I had a mum and dad so dad is a um a scientist and so he's like the opposite right super intellectual very slow pace slow thinking precise like wants to get to the bottom of everything analytical and yeah. mum is like on the other end of the spectrum, like get it done, get it done quickly, 80, 80, 20 rule, like just yeah. come on, you know? So the balance of those, you know, I, I sort of feel like it's almost a superpower, like who am I going to channel today? Like mum or dad? Yeah. Because um, so, <laughs> both of them are, you know, right for the moment. Mm. Um. Yeah. So in terms of like the family balance, I guess, um, it, Like on the surface, I guess it would seem very traditional. Dad worked a full-time job. He was like the primary breadwinner. Mum is a physio and Mm -hmm. um, she worked locum jobs. So she just only, it was kind of like being a replacement teacher equivalent, Mm -hmm. Um, but she was a physio and it was with the same group every time. She was really good friends with all the people she worked with. And if someone, you know, someone went away for a holiday or whatever, she might cover them for a couple of weeks. And she she actually was kind of working full time, but yeah, doing of work. Yeah, and yeah. what it meant and what I've learned since is that it, it allowed her to like, it, it allowed her to work, but not be emotionally involved in it. So she loved it. Yeah, she loved yeah. helping people. She loved working with those people. And then, but she had no, like, she didn't have to do paperwork. She didn't have to do admin. She didn't have any politics. Yeah. She had no commitment. It was just like all the good parts. Yeah, And I think, I remember thinking like, how could you do, you know, like, don't you want to like sink your teeth in a bit more? And now I'm like, oh, I get it. This is awesome. <laughs> you know, like that is I, yeah fantastic. Yeah. So I think um, that's sort of how she made that work. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas dad was much more like, um, you know, I'm, I'm here working in this job and, um, you know, he loved, I think he loved the job, but there was much more sort of obligation and, um, doing the right thing and, um, yeah, sort of more, um, sort of balanced, like, um, you know, slog, slog, like,
2: <laughs> yeah, self- yeah, I know he yeah. loved his work
1: and, and the, like the, the work that he was doing and the people that he worked with and all the rest, but it was definitely much more like I'm going to plod through you here and this is, you know, I need to do this. And, yeah. So yeah. I think, yeah, they, they were different. And in terms of home life, like mum basically just made everything happen. So, you know, dad's job was pretty full on. So he, he was um, working and then, you know, mum looked after us, um, you know, all the extracurricular stuff got us for school organized all just everything full yeah. mental load yeah um yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah but i think i learned a lot from them they had a very even um sort of even decision making at home so the you know the the power dynamic was very even mm. um you know i think especially when it came to discipline um um yeah it was it was quite even there as well um i don't know you only kind of like, yeah. The, I think they did a remarkable job. I'm grateful that I was born into their family. <laughs> yeah, can't really can't really critique too much. I, I was lucky. Um, yeah. Sounds very balanced. Sort of. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't perfect. No family's perfect. Like we definitely have our flaws. I'm sure if you spoke to my husband, you would. You know, <laughs> he really thinks. I think you know, um, our two families are quite different. Um, we're definitely more argumentative. Um, we um, but it's not like a mean argumentative. It's just mm. a discussion like what yep. do you think about this or you're wrong? This is how it should be, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, but you know, we're strong families either way, mm. which is a very lucky thing to have, I think. yeah, that's for sure.,
0: oh, that sounds lovely. Um, I know <laughs> what you mean about the argument? my my husband and I we like to debate topics because yeah. we come from very different headspaces and backgrounds he's a financial yeah. planner and yeah. I don't like maths at all um yeah and we have different views when it comes to politics um, so yeah. we'll often be having discussions and the little yeah. one will say stop arguing and we'll both be like but we're not arguing no, we're, we're arguing. just talking yeah. about this and I'm getting yeah. passionate about it <laughs> you know? yeah yeah yeah
1: so, and I, I think, I think that that's important. kind of nice, like it's sort of like a, um, you know, you're not, you're not going to get in trouble. Yeah. Like sometimes I find you need to sort of argue things out to understand what you think yourself as well. And so yeah, I'd agree with it's that. It's nice to have that space yeah. Yeah, and less yeah. and less, you're less and less able to do that out in public. Oh or in gosh. Anymore. Yeah. You basically
0: so, get shot down for, I yeah. don't know, offending someone or saying the wrong thing or something. So yeah, you do need those safe spaces to debate things and to, yeah. to thrash out ideas. And, and like my eldest child, um, he's 50, nearly 15. So he's asking some interesting questions and you want yeah. him to be able to feel like he can ask them. You know, like yeah. I said before, you hope that your child does come to you and he certainly comes to us with some interesting things. And we're like, yep, okay, we can talk about that, you know. It's, yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's, it's, cool. g- it's good. Yeah. I quite enjoy a conversation like that. I, I enjoy conversation. Enjoy, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, <laughs> I awesome. love doing yeah. this. <laughs> Can you share with us the website um, or any socials that you're active on? That you. Oh yeah, um, sure. So
1: yeah, so uh, milkdroppumps.com, and um, in the new year we'll be running a campaign. Uh, you know, I mentioned a couple of times about how there's not a lot of research in women's health,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or not as much as there could be, and one of the things there's not much research on is women's nipple anatomy and um, lactating or otherwise. And um, that's a real problem because it means when you're trying to figure out how to design products for women, you actually don't have the basics available. A lot of research on women's nipples is um, older research that was about nipple attractiveness, where should the nipple be placed on the breast, how big should it be, what shape should it be, Um, that kind of thing. Um, Some of that was used... um, for cosmetic surgery, some of it was used for breast reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um uh and then um the other area of nipple research is for social media identifying female versus male nipples to take down the female nipples because it's illegal to post them, not illegal, but against you know, community. Yeah policy to show a female nipple, which we could go into another podcast about that. Mm. Um, and so what we're trying to do is ask women to measure their nipples to help us build up an understanding of what women's bodies actually look like so that we can mm. design things for actual women. Um, so we've got a campaign on that um, coming up in the new years. Watch out for that. Um, mm. Be on Instagram at milk underscore pumps or TikTok.
0: Ah, you're a TikToker. <laughs> I still haven't got yeah, on there. Yes. <laughs> yes, I feel like it's so, just yeah, too much on. of a big rabbit hole for me to go down.
1: <laughs> pretty full on. It's pretty full on. But, oh, um, no,
0: good yep. on you! Oh, and I'll put yep. um, hyperlinks in the show notes so people can awesome. away and find you. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to chat with you and to. Oh, you hear you too. Your, your
1: achievements and thank you
0: for for um, oh thanks
1: for having me I feel like a bit of an interloper in the in the art world but hopefully oh, um, artists hopefully create... it's nice to hear from someone who appreciates it but doesn't yeah. do it yeah
0: no look and I think that the, the things that you've shared are all extremely relevant so please don't feel yeah. like you're uh yeah. you know I don't know what the word is <laughs> interloper. That's okay, yeah, but you're not you're not like and you know you yeah. you've seen it and you've, you've created something amazing and I'm really really happy that you did oh. it and I've I'm really happy for you for what you've done too. So good on you and um, stop blabbing now Just say thanks
1: very much. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Thanks
0: again. Thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to consider leaving us a review, following or subscribing to the podcast, or even sharing it with a friend you think might be interested. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch with us via the link in the show notes. I'll catch you again next week for another chat with an artistic mum. Helen Thompson is a childcare educator and baby massage instructor, and she knows being a parent for the first time is challenging and changes your life in every way imaginable. Join Helen each week in the First Time Mums Chat podcast, where she'll help ease your transition into parenthood. Helen aims to offer supported, holistic approaches and insights for mums of babies aged mainly from four weeks to 10 months of age. Helen's goal is to assist you to become the most confident parent you can and smooth out the bumps along the way. Check out First Time Mums Chat at mybabymassage.net forward slash podcast.